Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast on religious liberty and end time events. And I have a very special guest here today, Mr. Michael Peabody. Mr. Peabody, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. First of all, can you introduce yourself and what you do? Yeah, I am the editor of ReligiousLiberty.tv. It's a website um, operated by Founders First Freedom, a nonprofit religious liberty organization. And we primarily focus on advocacy on religious liberty issues, as well as educating the public about different aspects of the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause of the Constitution. Um, I'm also a, an attorney here in Los Angeles, and that's my day job. So we keep busy. Yes, indeed. And if, if I may add, is it correct that you are a legal counsel for the Supreme Court of the United States? I'm actually a um, member of the, the Supreme Court bar. I, you know, every so often we will write an amicus brief or something. Um, I'm not really an attorney for the Supreme Court, but I am licensed to practice in front if I needed to. Uh, for those that are not legally inclined, can you explain what an amicus brief is? Yeah, what it is is when there's an issue going in front of the Supreme Court, the court is actually looking to address a broad um, spectrum of information concerning a case. They're not just looking at a single specific case in order to decide that case. They're looking to see whether or not the case was correctly decided at the lower courts and whether or not the current interpretation of the law is correct or whether you know some aspects of either federal or state law are unconstitutional. So what an amicus brief is, is an opportunity for a party who's not a party to the litigation to actually express their concerns about some aspect of what's being brought before the court so that the court pays attention to all the concerns. Because when the court issues a ruling, a lot of times it can have implications far beyond the facts of the specific case in front of it. So it's really important to be able to let the court know how this will impact other people in other areas of the law. So that's basically what it is. And um, normally in a, in a case, you'll have a number of different amicus briefs. You'll have briefs on both sides of the litigation and sometimes right down the middle just saying, look, please pay attention to this issue as you're deciding. Now, did you file a brief in regards to the recent case with the 7th Avenue with Walgreens? Uh, yes, we did. We actually filed a brief in support of the Supreme Court hearing the case. What, what happens is there are usually over there are thousands of cases that get appealed to the Supreme Court every year. And the court will only take a few to listen to. And it may be less than 100 um, cases in any single year that they'll actually decide on. So what we were doing was we were saying, look, you know, this is a case that should be heard because the various circuits have issued different rulings on it at the lower court level. And we need the Supreme Court to issue a ruling in order to have some kind of consistency and give some guidance to lower courts as to how to address the issue of religious accommodation. Now, in the 2016 election, there was a fair share of Seventh Avenues that were concerned about the left, the secular left, endangering religious liberties. Does the recent administration appoint federal judges and Supreme Court justices that favors religious liberty in the Seventh Avenues view of religious liberty? Well, that's an interesting question because so far we haven't had that many religious liberty cases actually go up in front of the court. So it's hard to determine whether or not these new judges, um, Kavanaugh and, and Gorsuch, are favorable to um, you know separation of church and state or not. Um, the one major case that went up was the case involving the cross in Maryland. And both of the justices, I believe, 
said that the cross there was constitutional, but that had to do with the religious symbol. So at this point, as far as like fundamental core beliefs of free exercise of religion, which is a major concern for Adventists, it's still hard to predict which way the court's going to go. And I think the jury's still out on whether or not the new justices are going to uphold separation of church and state or not, and are going to uphold the right to freely um, practice your religion. I think they're stronger on free exercise than they are on the Establishment Clause, but that's kind of speculation, and it's hard to tell for sure at this point. But I think um, we're going to see some more cases being going up to the court, and I think we'll have a better view of that in the next year or so. In your view, what is your definition of the separation of church and state? Is it favorable towards, say, Christians, Protestant Christians, or is it favorable towards all religions? I believe a separation of church and state is mutually beneficial to both sides, um, if you're secular or religious. If you're religious, you don't want the state interfering with your right to practice religion or telling you what to do or what you can't do. If you're secular, you have a very similar concern about the state telling you that you need to do some type of religious action or or not do it. Um, you know, religion is the thing that's between a person and God and their faith community, and the state really um, shouldn't have an interest in getting too involved in that because what happens is as the state becomes involved in religion, it actually sort of cheapens the religion and makes it seem like it's something, you know, just for the government. And we see that a lot in, in Europe where they have state churches where hardly anybody goes to them because they feel like it's just an extension of the government. So separation of church and state is really a valuable thing for pretty much everybody. Now, we live in some very interesting times right now with the recent COVID-19 crisis. Uh, I kind of liken it to the 9-11 of the Gen Z generation at this time. What constitutional implications do you see with the recent COVID-19 crisis? Well, it's a... Uh... The COVID-19 crisis is unique in history because it's affecting everybody in the world. And pretty much everybody in the entire world is being asked to stay home and not go to work if they don't have to. Um, you know, don't gather in groups, don't have a birthday party, don't have church services unless, you know, they're online or streaming. And in some jurisdictions, people are actually being arrested or fined if they do not observe that rule and they try to go ahead and have you know gather with other people or, or with churches and that type of thing so there's some implication because a person may say look you know i have to gather with other people as part of my religious beliefs and so a lot of people are concerned that if the government tells them they cannot get involved in religious services that somehow it is a violation of their religious liberty and that it you know, would have constitutional implications there. Another area that people are concerned about is the right to travel. The, there's some, some research coming out of the, or some articles coming out in the newspapers and different places saying that governments are looking at an opportunity to study cell phone records to see whether or not people are associating with other people and if they're staying far enough away from them. Pretty much if you're like, most people these days are carrying a cell phone around wherever you go and they can track you and see how close you are to other people. And then if you were to have the virus, they could warn the people that you were near that you had the virus and then they could sort of track who has spread the contagion. So there's a wide range of constitutional concerns 
And a lot of them make a lot of sense right now. It's, you know, tracking people makes sense, logically speaking, in order to find out where the virus has been. Staying home from church makes sense because churches seem to be a place where a lot of viruses have spread in places where people have not observed that. And so the implications are going to likely be heard in the future after the disease is over, after COVID-19 has passed, and some of these same rules remain in place or these precedents remains in place for, hey, you know, we tracked you for, you know, the virus. Um, we're going to start tracking you for environmental concerns. Or we're going to start tracking you for any other type of existential threat to society. In China, they actually have what's called a social credit score, essentially. And it's sort of like your score as a human being. You know, what type of person are you? What do you say online? Are you worth hanging around? Uh, and should you be allowed to travel and engage in commerce? Um, and so as we, you know, get closer to the ideas of like Revelation 13, Mark the Beast, that type of stuff, there's a lot of concern that we're seeing some of those building blocks going into place where a person's association and their travel habits and their religious habits and what they say online would potentially be a basis for tracking them, not to prevent the spread of a disease, but to out of concern for their religious beliefs or practices. So that's down the road a long ways, but I think it's worth paying attention to that now. Do you believe it was proper for the churches to close down in the midst of this crisis? I think so, yes. Um, and the reason is COVID-19 is not like other types of communicable diseases. For instance, if when the AIDS epidemic was going around, people had to have a transmission of body fluid. And it was not that easy to catch it from somebody else. Um, you know, as long as you were absorbing, you know, if you were in casual contact with them, you probably wouldn't get it. But COVID-19 remains on surfaces after you've left. So if you cough into your hand and then you turn a doorknob, anybody who comes after you and touches the doorknob can get it, and then they can pass it on to other people. So it's very contagious. It's very serious. It's about 10 times as deadly as a regular flu. Um, and I, I know some people say, well, it's not as... Um, you know, the overall numbers are low compared with the population. But if you compare the number of people who are projected to die from COVID-19 and the conservative estimates from the Trump administration are between 100,000 and possibly 200,000 from Dr. Fauci, who has been discussing this in the press conferences, these would be deaths that would be roughly twice as many as American soldiers died in Vietnam, way more than in Korea, um, It'd be pretty much like World War One plus Vietnam plus Korea in terms of the number of deaths in the U.S. And those were put the United put the U.S. on a major war footing. So these are serious times. The numbers are serious, and I believe churches are wise to stay home. They have a religious belief that God will protect them and that they need to step forward in faith and not participate in the stay-at-home orders and just go to church anyway. But I would analogize it, and this is like Martin Luther did, to a um, burning church. So if your church is on fire, you get out of the building. You don't just stand there and let it burn around you. So there are a number of reasons why um, churches need to take that seriously and their wives to stay home. What potential repercussions would there be for a church that adheres to, like, say, uh, we have God's protection, Psalms 91, and they meet anyway, 
and a super spreader infects the whole congregation and it impacts the whole city. Are there any religious liberty repercussions for that? Because this happened in South Korea where an offshoot Christian group met and there was a lady that was infected with a virus and they didn't believe in masks and they didn't believe in precautions and it spread all the way to the congregation and a city of 2.5 million people were practically shut down because of this. Are there any persecution type implications if someone did it here? Well, you know, the basic principle I'm that I'm going with is from 1 Corinthians 10 uh, verses 23 to 24. And NIV says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Now, the problem with this is that when you have a super spreader, when you have somebody in the congregation, you don't know who they are. They don't know who they are. They're just going to church and doing their thing. They may they may not even cough into their hand. They may cough into their elbow, but the disease gets spread because they're right next to each other, you know. Um, so as these things happen, and, and I think a lot of the early um, spreading of the disease probably happened in churches and happened at things like that because churches are pretty much, you meet once a week and you're people from, there's people from everywhere, all different walks of life come together to meet in one place. Then they separate out and they don't see each other for another week. So they go to each one goes their own family, which then goes their own jobs and schools and everything else and spreads this thing out. So now that we know it's out there, if a church continues to meet, I think they are actually being negligent stewards of their knowledge and stewards of or, or negligent um, you know, citizens, really, because they're engaging in an activity that is bound to bring about more and more suffering and disease across their community. Churches are supposed to spread the gospel, not COVID-19. So the implication for religious liberty is, I think in the U.S., I think if a church, let, let's say a, a, there's a there's a stay-at-home order and the church meets in violation of the order and the pastor gets arrested for holding the service. Let's say that happens. Okay. Everybody goes home, case sits around, they release the pastor, you know, on bail or whatever. And so the failure trial is going to be in July. Okay. July comes around the, the COVID-19 is passed and the trial takes place. I think that the courts would likely find that they had a free exercise right to congregate and the free exercise right would be found under, and, and I'm, I'm speaking of us law here. Okay. Um, and I'll get, you know, the broader implications I think are covered by, by first Corinthians and that cons larger concern. But if I'm speaking about us law, I think the court would likely find that there'd be a free exercise flash right to assembly hybrid, right? Developed that would allow the, congregation to have met and will find that the pastor was improperly arrested the reality is though let's say it's not a crime but they still cause the death of a lot of people that's a problem and just really briefly i want to talk about the the free exercise issue um there was a case called employment division versus smith many well in 1990 and there's a lot of history it's a famous peyote case and the Supreme Court found that if a law is generally applicable and does not single out a person's religion, that law is likely going to stand as constitutional. 
it applies to state laws, not federal laws, because of a subsequent case called um, Bernie versus Flores. But if it, in a state situation, if just under a free exercise assessment of a state law, the generally applicable rule of that a church should stay home along with every other group that meets with over 50 people or over 10 people would not likely be found to have singled out a religious group. So then if you want to apply the free exercise right, there's something called hybrid rights, which says, well, if you can find another right to attach it to, then the free exercise right may actually apply. And um, hybrid rights are currently sort of a legal theory. It's not really been tried out in the Supreme Court yet. But if I were to tie the issue of the free exercise of religion to the right of free assembly, then there's likely going to be a substantial reason that the free exercise rights would prevail and under the right to assembly. So those are the those are the legal implications of it. But the reality is you're dealing with churches and places that are going to be petri dishes for contamination and for essentially death. You know, per, you know, and I, I think it's highly irresponsible in this environment knowing what we know now. And I'm not talking about two weeks ago. I'm not talking about one week ago. I'm talking about what we know now. It is irresponsible for a congregation to meet and potentially cause this type of mayhem in their community. Is there any legal precedence for the federal and state government in the response of COVID-19? For example, I saw an article, was it a week ago, where the Justice Department is seeking to remove due process rights or applying for that measure. Is there any legal precedence? And first of all, for those that are not legally inclined, can you explain what due process or habeas corpus is first and then answer the rest of the question? Well, due process rights have to do with the ability to avail yourself of the legal system. And the Department of Justice was, what they wanted to do was extend the time for people who are arrested to be in jail before a trial took place. There's a constitutional right to a quick trial. And what they were trying to do was extend that. And they said, look, the courts aren't in session, so we need to actually allow the people to sit in jail while we wait for the courts to come back from the COVID-19 break. Otherwise, police could be arresting people and they'd be forced to let them out before they ever go to trial. So that was what the Department of Justice was doing. I haven't caught up exactly as what, to whether that was actually achieved. I don't think they actually were able to change that, but it was what they were trying to do. Um, but the um, so due process rights are possibly implicated there. Um, and a lot of times it, lo it looks like it's an emergency type issue. And a lot of times when you have an emergency that happens, people say, you know, what's the easiest thing we can do? How can we do what we need to do and not have a situation where we're letting criminals go free um, who are arrested? But the reality is you don't know if they're guilty or not. Uh, the issue, uh, you know, that they need to look at is whether or not the constitutional rights are being protected, because when constitutional rights matter is during times of crisis. Is there legal precedence for federal and state authorities to 
approach COVID-19 in such a manner? Because from the layman's view or from the outside perspective, we see here um, freedom of assembly and the First Amendment being affected, uh, religious freedom, First Amendment implications, Fourth Amendment implications and whatnot. Is there legal precedence? There actually is. Um, in 1918, there was a huge influenza pandemic that swept the nation. And a lot of people died from it. But the government asked churches to close. And in some areas they did. I know in Los Angeles they did. And so um, the only times reported on October 13, 1918, that the church doors are closed today to assemblages for public worship. This is in compliance to the demands of health authorities to which the churches have given cheerful acquiescence. But this does not mean that prayers and hymns of praise and supplication for divine guidance will not arise. They will ascend from under the roof tree at many a household, and the preachers believe that the temporary prohibition of the assemblages of people for religious meetings will have a tendency to revive practical home worship which has become a sadly neglected function in religious life. So that was from the LA Times in 1918. And so there's been situations in the past where the state and local governments have asked churches to not hold services in order to prevent the spread of disease. You posted an article that you wrote about Martin Luther. And as we know that uh, the Protestant Reformation is very important to religious liberty and how he reacted to the bubonic plague. Can you explain more about that article? Yeah, Martin Luther used to write a lot of really long articles about simple subjects, and this was one of them. And what happened was at that time, there were a lot of people who thought that if you stayed home during the plague, you, you did not have enough faith. You needed to go out and exercise your faith by meeting with other people. And so Luther kind of characterized that view as, as this. He said, they believe that since death was God's punishment, which he sends upon us for our sins, we must submit to God and with a true and firm faith, patiently await our punishment. They look upon running away as an outright wrong and as a lack of belief in God. And so then he said, you know, they have a lot of faith and that's a good thing. But he said to flee from death and to save one's life is a natural tendency implanted by God, unless it is against God and neighbor. And so he said, use medicine, take potions which can help you fumigate the house, yard, and street. Shun persons and places wherever your neighbor does not need your presence or has recovered. And act like a man who wants to help put out the burning city. So I didn't put this in the article, but you can. there's a link to the full Luther article um, on the webpage at religiousliberty.tv. But what he says is, if you don't... If you think that you should be able to just, you should just stand by and be punished by God for this for sin or, or not punished, and face that risk, he says it's like being in a burning building and not putting out the fire, or falling into the ocean, and not trying to swim to safety, or if you're going hungry, just staying hungry and not trying to get food or or you're thirsty, not trying to get water. He gives a whole bunch of examples like that, and basically his point is take precautions, be careful, don't put yourself in unnecessary risk. And so at that time, there, there were apparently a lot of people who felt that they needed to go to the daily mass and receive the sacrament. But 
in so doing, they were actually spreading the disease. And even at that point, 500 years ago, they understood that these are communicable diseases spread by person to person. So that was a bubonic plague at the time. But he said, look, you know, be careful, clean your house, clean up everything, and do the responsible thing and stay home, essentially. Do you see any prophetic implications to what's happening right now? You know, I think one thing that I think is very unique about this is the fact that you have so many people around the world all facing the exact same crisis. And I think every time anything happens, people say, look, this is the end of the world. This is going to be it. And I think as times, as things happen, there are certain infrastructures put into place that can bring about end time events. You know, the idea of spying on people, there's hotlines right now in some cities where you can call up and report your neighbors if you think they're they're having a party and the police will come and tell them to disperse or possibly even find them. So there's a lot of weird little things that are given a lot of hints about what, you know, not being able to buy and sell. I know that in one of the early drafts of the proposed legislation, um, they had actually talked about going to a cashless society and moving everything, in fact, to a cyber currency. So I thought that was really interesting because this was about a week into the entire thing, and they already had laws in place that could be used to get rid of cash transactions. Um, you know, and even now it's kind of awkward if you're going to a drive through restaurant or whatever, if you're doing that, you know, to actually hand over cash feels dirty because you don't know what you're going to get back, and it's, it's a way of spreading disease. So I see a lot of this stuff going down to moving to cashless. And I know a lot of times Adventists will downplay the the practical aspects of Revelation 13 and say, oh, you know, the mark of the beast is a thought and it's an activity. But it's very clear that, you know, when it says no man will buy or sell, that it's talking about a very specific type of ability to lock down a person's purchases. And when you couple this with everybody stay home, you no church services, stay home, don't spend money, don't go to work, we know where you are, we're going to track you, you can't use money. Um, we're going to tell you when you can use your money, when you want to use your money. Um, it's very clear that the infrastructure for enforcing that is in place. And I think those implications are huge. And I think they're more, it should give us more reason now to spread the gospel and use online resources if you need to. You know, in, in the New Testament, there's a story where Jesus is talking to the children and, um, Somebody says, oh, you know, tell the kids to go away. And Jesus said, you know, if they don't sing praises to me, then the very rocks will cry out. And right now, we are unable to meet together to sing praises, but here we are communicating electronically. I've had more prayer services online in the last week than I had for several months before that. Uh, you know, you look online, you see a person's video, them talking. Uh, our church is actually having a number of Sabbath school meetings and things where we're face-to-face, -face. and, you know, when you look at, you know, what, what are we using for this means of communication? It's the very rocks. It's the rocks that make the electronics. The, the, um, the technology we have now is astounding, and so even though we're unable to meet face-to-face -face and I can't touch a person, the rocks are crying out. We can talk to them electronically and communicate. So that, to me, is a is an interesting aspect, you know, maybe, maybe my interpretation on that's wrong, but I think, I think it's accurate. Mm. I think we're, you know, and Jesus knew what he's talking about when he, when he said that. Amen.
You and I both share a passion for religious liberty, and I believe that religious liberty is sorely neglected as part of our end-time gospel message to the world, part of Third Angel's message that we need to declare to the world. What can Seventh-day Adventist lay people do to integrate religious liberty more to their ministries? Well, I think one thing is, even if you cannot meet in person or, or have a traditional ministry, be active, be online, be in, involved in your community as to the extent possible. And exercise your religious liberty. Let people know you're out there. You know, a lot of times there's a tendency when there's a perceived threat to religious liberty to sort of hunker down and build a shelter and go hide away somewhere. But I think at this point we're being called to to be active. You know, engage with people who may not share your faith. Have conversations where you're interested in learning from them just like they learn from you. Um, you know, it's not a matter of just preaching to people. It's a matter of being part of people's lives and saying, hey, you know, here I am. I believe, you know, here's what I believe and I respect what you believe. And, um, you know, let's go go for a walk together. We'll stay social distance apart, but let's go do something. Let's communicate online. Um, you know, be known for who you are. Be known as, you know, let yourself be known as an Adventist and a Christian don't hide from that, but integrate with the world. Let people know who you are. I mean, also, learning about these things is important. One of the things that I think derails a lot of people's ability to spread the gospel is they get involved in partisan politics. And they start to talk about politicians all the time, and they talk about who they like and who they don't like. And it makes it much harder to share the gospel with somebody when you go in with that type of an over, overlay on top of you. And it's something we try to do with our Facebook group um, for the religiousliberty.tv is to really avoid partisan politics, discuss issues, but not personalities. Because, you know, you know, in the, in the long run, it doesn't matter who the president is um, as much as that a person knows who God is. So don't let your political views stand in the way of your witness. So there are a number of different things you can do. Um, that's just a couple of ideas. And can you share with our listeners what resources and projects that you have, what platforms you have uh, of the various uh, projects that you do right now? Well, right now with Religious Liberty TV, we're, we've got a website, religiousliberty.tv. It's .tv instead of .org or .com or whatever. And so that's kind of a place where we put original materials up and we have articles and try to be timely on, on certain you know issues that come up. Um, I found more recently our Facebook group. It, um, you can look up Religious Liberty, religiousliberty.tv, the group. And there's also a page, but the group is the one that's active and it's a closed group. But there are a couple of questions to answer and then you can fill them out and join the group and we're, you're welcome. And that's where we kind of get into depth on discussing the issues with each other. We've got about 1,400 members so far. And about a week ago, we put up our first live video um, presentation about COVID-19. And I think we're going to do that a few more times in the next few weeks. But basically, we try to use that as a place for people to share ideas. Um, we keep the group closed simply because we don't want it to be widely searched and we want people to feel comfortable um, participating in it and not feel like, you know, everybody else that they know is going to read everything they say. So there's that. We also have a Twitter account and 
Um, we've got several other, you know, we've got, we've got an email newsletter that we send out. Uh, you can get information about that from our website. And so we try to really use what's available to us um, to communicate about religious liberty issues. And I want to encourage our listeners to please go on those platforms. I'm on it myself. Thank you so much for inviting me to that closed group, by the way. Oh, no, no problem. And uh, just on a personal note, I actually was in law school with Mr. Peabody. He was a 3L or a third year, and I was a first year, and we never met. And I'm just glad that we finally met, even though we were at the same school together at one time. Yeah, it's crazy. You never know who's there. Yeah, you never know who's there. But, <laughs> but God has an appointed timing, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Peabody, for your valuable time. I know your time is valuable uh, as a practicing attorney, as a family man, and involved in the church. And before we end, can you have a closing word of prayer for us? Sure. And dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to discuss these issues. Thank you for the opportunity to continue to meet together virtually and for the technology we have in order to accomplish this and to accomplish the work. And please bless our nation, bless our churches and our families. Help this become an opportunity for growth and help us to glorify you more than ever before through what is going on. In Jesus' name, amen.